Hello, hello, this is Tracy Harrell, and welcome to Bigger Than Me. Each week, we focus on how to achieve your definition of success and happiness. On Bigger Than Me, we bring together a combination of ageless wisdom, the latest research, and engaging interviews with amazing people who are sharing their stories to help each of us achieve our full potential. Your journey to transformation begins right now. Let's do this. All right, ladies, let's do this. This is Tracy Harrell, and I'm so excited. What we do with Bigger Than Me is we use technology, community, and positive psychology to help good people do great things. And today's conversation is really one of those real courageous conversations, the type you wish you had a little, you know, you were able to lean into, listen into. If you don't have people in your life who are willing to have conversations that are going to really move the needle forward. Our topic is achieving racial equity and inclusion in business, education, wealth and health, and all systems. At this point, what we're hoping that each of you will do is just listen in, join in, log in, feel free to be a part of this conversation. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what I call the little pink elephant in the room that no one talks about. There is psychological and physiological impacts to the lack of racial equity and inclusion, right? We're going to talk about trauma, trust, and training. Each of these ladies and others that are going to join us have some role right now where they're training other people. They're helping other leaders. Log in. I heard my own voice. Feel free to be a part of this conversation. So what we're going to do is we're going to... So this is... <laughs> I don't know. I keep hearing my own voice. Um, so I think every, if everyone else can mute, maybe I won't hear myself. I don't know. Well, sir, I'll try that. So we're going to have each of you introduce yourself. And we're going to start with you, Miss Joni. We're going to have you identify who you are. And why is this conversation so important? Why is it important that we have an elevated conversation on this idea of racial equity and inclusion? Well, first of all, Tracy, thank you for having me. And uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation with all the panelists today. Uh, for those who don't know me, um, and I do know a few of you from a particular uh, work that we, body of work that we do, but um, I'm Johnny Reddick. I retired after 29 years in law enforcement. Um, I retired at uh, an executive level at pretty much being about top 1% in my organization, but also in law enforcement. Uh, for women in leadership for which I was. So when I say that out loud, it actually humbles me quite a bit. So that's why I have that hesitation. Um, and through that experience in law enforcement and the cumulative trauma for myself, as well as those of my staff, I decided after that 29 year mark that I was ready to retire. And I was ready to retire for reasons having to do with the things that you deal with trauma um, that affect you, like you said, physiologically, psychologically. And I didn't want my, to find myself um, dying at my job, at my desk, doing the work um, that I was doing. And also I wanted to be free to be able to um, really explore how I could help others, not only in my profession, but overall in business, be able to be more resilient and be successful in the work they do without having to carry um, a lot of this weight and burden that comes from uh, a variety of factors. And so I think this conversation is extremely important because um, 
as we've seen in the last four years and more so in this last year of 2020, this conversation is needed, but it's also gained so much momentum from people of all diverse backgrounds, whether it's gender, race, um, economics, um, different countries, it's really important. And I think the issue and the challenge for leaders is going to be the sustainability of not just the talk about it, but really what's gonna be the action about it. And so I know as we begin to have a discussion here today, we'll talk about some of those things. So I'm just very glad to be here and thank you. Thank you, thank you. What I love about the conversations that I've had with each of you and for those that are going to join us, what was really powerful is that we all are on the same focus. We have the same mission, the same goal of wanting to achieve racial equity and inclusion. Some of us are more elevated and escalated in our approach than others. So I'm gonna bring Pamela on who I was just like, yes, my sister. <laughs> Right. We all have amazing stories, but what I read from you, and I met you through the Tacoma Collective, we'll talk more about what that organization is in a second, but one of the topics you, you all have that you're focusing on is racism as a public health crisis. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and who you are and why is that so important? Okay, well, I am so humbled to be a part of this panel. Uh, this has been a long time coming for me. It, it's exciting. Um, my name is Pam Sachs Lawler, and um, I actually have a master's in healthcare administration and in public health and pursuing my doctorate in education with an emphasis on behavioral health. I um, have about 30 years of experience in uh, statewide management of substance abuse and mental health um, services. I am a, the behavioral health administrator for the state of Washington juvenile rehabilitation. And as Tracy said, I'm uh, the chair of the, the Black Collective Health Committee, where our goal is to take a look at health issues that um, adversely affect the Black community. Now, why should we be talking about this? Well, let's say that uh, racism is uh, a public health um, epidemic in the United States. And well, actually it's, it's pandemic. So it happens throughout the world. And I wanted to say just briefly that our Board of Health in the Washington in Washington State has declared um, um, racism, racism as a public health crisis. Particularly King County and Pierce County has, has also declared that. Now, why do we really, really need to take a look at um, racism as it relates to public health? I am a public health educator. And when I look at things that affect um, my people, I look, I understand that it's not just physiological, but it's psychological that, um, that affects our people because racism causes trauma, trauma that a lot of us don't realize that we actually have. And that goes back to, and we'll talk a little bit later about Dr. Joy DeGruy O'Leary's, um, the um, post-traumatic slave syndrome that we don't realize that we actually have symptoms of that. So the result of um, racism, it causes conditions that unfairly, that um, make it unfair advantage um, to some people, to white people in particular. Racism hurts the health of our nation and our community by preventing some of us the opportunity to, to attain to the highest level of health and economic wellness. So it's not just health, 
but economic wellness. And I think the other pa panel members will talk about the business of this. And racism can be intentional or unintentional. And it operates on different levels in society. But it's a, it's a driving force of social determinants of our health, like housing, education, employment, and again, it is a, bar a barrier for health equity. So we really need to address this. When I say epidemic, um, like I said, I'm a public health person, but when, you, when, when we look at epidemics, when we have an epidemic, what do we do, okay? What does the public health um, field do when there's an epidemic? They address it as if it is a disease, correct? So racism, we have to address it, it and, and go after it like it's a disease. We need to address the conditions for its spread. We need to prevent its adverse impacts on our children and our families and identify more effective ways to stop our racism, stop racism by creating the conditions for positive trajectories for every member of our most vulnerable communities. What does that mean? We need to look at how is it affecting our children? How is it affecting our grown-ups? How is it affecting our jobs? How is it affecting our housing? Because it does affect all of that. And we'll talk a little bit later about business people and, and, uh, and on the job. And how does it affect you when you are the lone person in that room constantly, <laughs> or you are, or you yes. are the, the person who is the <laughs> diversity consultant that goes in to consult, to, to bring about change in organizations. And you have people that are constantly fighting. What does that do to you physiologically that, and psychologically? All of that. And I, I love you. I don't think anyone has come on this show and summarized in such a comprehensive I'm way. I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you're getting your PhD in this topic because that's exactly what we need. So I, I love it. I love it. I love it. I didn't actually, um, and it's a perfect transition because what you just described is someone who works in consulting who goes into businesses to try to drive change. That brings me to our next guest, which is beautiful Ms. Patricia Smith, Patricia Davis. Patricia Davis. <laughs> Patricia Davis Smith Davis. <laughs> I do know Patricia Smith. She's watching us right now. So excuse me for that. Patricia Davis, uh, can you please introduce yourself and tell us mm -hmm. why is it so important that we have a, a different level of conversation, that we escalate and elevate the conversation to focus on the trauma that exists? These ladies are talking about physiological, physio physical physiological, psychological, we have all of the impacts and we're not talking about it the same way. We're talking about the same things that we've been talking about. Let's hire more black people. Let's donate some money to some black businesses, but that's not systemic change. That's not what system, how we get to systemic change. So first thing we have to do is really get people to think about the problem different, solve a different problem. If you're solving the problem of not enough black people in businesses, that's the wrong problem to solve. You have to peel back the onion and go to the root cause. So talk to me a little bit about why, who you are and why this is so important that we think about it in a different way, in a systemic way. Well, thank you, Tracy. And I'm just honored to be here with these two lovely women and you, Tracy. And uh, I've been on your show a couple of times, um, but I am a consultant and I do quite a bit of diversity, equity, and inclusion training, mostly in the public sector. So I work with King County Metro, with Jefferson County, uh, with City of Sammamish, City of Mercer Island. And you hear those words, especially Jefferson County, um, 
Sammamish and, and Mercer Island. I mean, they're historically white. I walk into those rooms and I am usually almost always the only person of color in the room. And I'm talking, there's very few Japanese or, or Hispanic people as well. And I always talk about myself as being that little speck of pepper in your salt that's a little bit irritating, but tolerable. And, and you know, working with King County Metro, it's a, it's a bit more diverse, but, and they have a, a really good program, a PACE program that they, they address their diversity issues. But all of that sits at the top of the organizations. And that's what I find most is their diversity programs sit at that top level level it's a, it's always a checklist so they've they've checked it off but the deeper you go down into an organization and that's what i do i do verticals um but the deeper you go down into an organization the less they know about the less they care about diversity equity and inclusion and and i think it's important to get there so before I was a consultant, I worked in, in public and se private sector. I worked with Microsoft, I worked with F5, I worked with you know quite a few uh, large advertising agencies. And Ms. Pam, when you talked about that visceral feeling that you get, there is so much microaggressive behavior and sometimes even overt uh, racial behavior and, and it's stuff that I just, it's, it's feelings that I just stuffed down. And, and I didn't know where it was coming from. And later we'll talk about that, I'm sure, because I had an interaction with a really good friend of mine the other day who happens to be a white woman, who happens to be on the other side of the political spectrum than I'm on. And it was a really eye-opening conversation that we had. But, you know, I am committed to doing this work and you know, as bad as the George Floyd incident was and how horrific that death was, it's really opened our eyes. The, the COVID has quieted us all down so that, that the world is actually listening now. So now's our time to talk. Now's our time to dig in and to make an impact just the same way those impacts were made in the 60s. We have to take a stand. Mm, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Ladies, what I what I love about this conversation is that we're all at a, at the same mental place in our in our in our in our mind and in our journey. Right. We have done the research. I didn't introduce myself. I worked 25 years in corporate America, eight years at IBM, 14 years at Disney, five years at Microsoft. Um, I am a project manager. I'm a leader. I'm a um, you know, I've done tons of research in the area of diversity and inclusion. I've actually been, I was leader of the Black Employee Resource Group. I don't know why I put that in air quotes, <laughs> but I did the, you know, the, the, the Black Employee Resource Group at Disney. Disney is the largest single source employer in the nation. So I understand what it means to create those spaces for uh, diverse individuals to come together. I also know what it means to be responsible for driving change, for feeling responsible for moving things forward for your community. And so I'm also currently president of the National Black MBA Association Seattle chapter. And, and again, part of our role as an, as an organization, it's around diversity recruiting. And the one thing I want to do as I transition out of that role is to make sure that I and leaders around the nation are all very clear that it's not about bringing new, more black people into your organization. It's about creating a space for everyone to thrive. It's about creating an, an inclusive environment for everyone to thrive. All the numbers, all the metrics tell a different story for African-Americans, for black professionals, for black leaders. 
it's a very different story. We could talk about the health. We've already, you know, scraped a little bit on the idea of the impact that that, that happens. And, I, and I've been in rooms with leaders where they talk about they're confused why the um, retention rate is so low for, for, for black Americans. For, for, for black people in general, they're confused. It's really nothing to be confused about. So part of what I want to do is, as a part of this conversation is to humanize the dialogue, to really take it to a whole nother level and really bring a, a different um, level of urgency, a call to action, a collective call to action for leaders to think about the experience that we, we, we're having as a health crisis, as a leadership crisis. And so I'm gonna go to you, Miss uh, Johnny. So you said you spent 29 years in the California Highway Patrol. You were at the 1% leadership level, but you also have these experiences, these, these experiences that with, with, with death and with trauma and with microaggressions and with racism. And, and you were also, you, you actually left before you felt like you were going to be further traumatized. Can you talk to individuals about your personal experience as a woman of mixed race, um, how, how do you think about, and what would you say to those watching us about why the experience for someone who's black versus someone who's white, why it's different, how it's different, and why it should be considered a different physical and emotional experience? You mentioned that you're biracial, but you have a black son, right? Your, your lived experience in so many ways, and you're in, in, in the, uh, law enforcement. So there's all kind of things happening in your life. So can you tell us a little bit, I think we have to make it personal, right? I think we have to really draw a little personal connection for people to really understand the, the impact and the real story. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and your experience and make it real for someone who's watching, thinking, what are these ladies talking about? <laughs> I don't get it. That's not my lived experience. Help us out. No. So I think that's part of the, the reality for um, myself and many like me that my lived experience, because I'm not darker skinned, doesn't mean I'm not experienced some racism or discrimination. And, you know, that's a that's often a challenge too for those who are biracial is your identity, right? And like you said, Tracy, my lived experience has been one where I've grown up as a black American. That is how I was raised. That is how my children are raised. That is how my family is looked at. And in policing, it was very interesting because it's predominantly white male. So it's a microcosm of the bigger macro of our world when you look at how things are done. And so personally for me, experiencing um, my journey in law enforcement was also gender-based um, because it is a male-dominated industry. But as I started, I came on very young. I came on at 21. Um, coming into the profession really was a lifesaver for me because I came from a very fractured and broken childhood. Um, and so it was something that nobody in my family had ever done. Nobody had ever talked about it. Nobody, actually people uh, were you know, the opposite of law enforcement than being positive. And so it wasn't something that was necessarily celebrated. But I did it because I grew up um, not having the security and the benefits of, you know, understanding what good pay could be like and what a job of service might look like. And so I did it. And as I came up through the organization is when I started discovering who I was more and also noticing what was going on around me and as I promoted, there was nobody to help me promote. It was kind of like a you know trial by fire. But then after I promoted, I looked around and I just saw how others 
weren't being promoted the same way that I wasn't and they didn't have any help. And I didn't understand why people couldn't help each other despite what you know your race, gender or anything else was. And as I went up through the organization, it became more than about seeing people not being able to promote, but how unfairly people were being treated for access to particular assignments or to opportunities or um, just to be able to come in and be a participate in something. And what I saw was, you know, this unconscious bias that takes place and then you begin to categorize and catalog people intentionally or unintentionally on how they get to be a part of the collective. And the problem with that is, is that we begin then segregating. And like I said, this is a micro to the macro because um, I'm speaking, you know, from the organization in which I worked, but it started to create this divide and you only have so many of us moving up the corporate ladder and we're reaching back to help. So there's two things. There's leaders in the organization who, you know, have this unconscious bias in this lens and they usually will hire like, likes, like, because they're comfortable with that. And then you also have a part of this accountability piece that I think is really important, not just to leaders, but to the individual. Because I don't know how many of you know my peers or those around me that you want to help and reach out to, but they're already conditioned to a mindset of, you know, maybe they're not going to be as successful, you know, that's not for me. And so you have to change the mindsets and also uh, pour into them that they can believe in themselves, but it's going to take work and it's going to take discipline and we're going to have to, you know, kind of come together on this. And so it just got to be very heavy for me as I moved up into that top tier of the organization to look around and being proud of my moment, maybe being proud of like, you know, my best girlfriend's moment because we were peers at the time and now she's, you know, elevated in the organization. But two of us as women of color should not be something that we're celebrating. And then when you look at the overall organization of color throughout it, especially for you know, African-Americans in the organization, we're less than 5% of a statewide large agency. And again, a micro to the macro. And that just became very like stressful um, and it became heavy to carry. And then on top of that, we experience and are overly exposed to a you know, cumulative trauma of the kind of stress that this, you know, normal people do not experience, um, you know, with the death, constant, you know, we respond to somebody's worst day. And generally, if there's not death, there's pain or poverty, or, um, you know, sickness and illness, or, you know, a response. And it's tough, because this conversation about Black Lives Matter, they matter, I'm Black. Blue Lives Matter, I was blue, I was law enforcement. And I have, you know, I educate now at the University of San Diego in a graduate program for public safety and law enforcement leaders. And I try to take my experience and all of my knowledge and what I can to be able to go in and start to shape perceptions and ideals on how most of these white males who are in the um, programs to help them see their people in their organization, to be able to create some change. That's what I love about your panel is creating this change and this synergy. And how do you do that? And so, um, you know, those are the kind of things that I think are really important. 
So sorry for going on for too long. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. That That's really what this is about. It's really helping people to really take a, a different lens, a different look, to understand a different perspective. If it's not their lived experience, the best we can do is to share, you know, our experiences, to share, you know, research and knowledge that we have in order to help others to move the dial forward. Because I think it was, uh, Patricia, when you mentioned oftentimes you'll have leaders who are focused on equity and inclusion. They're focused on diversity. It's their role, right, to move diversity forward. But this won't change unless we're all engaged in the process. I call this a collective call to action. The reason I'm doing as much of this work as I am, the reason I'm pulling as many faces in as possible, the reason I'm literally you know, doing everything I can to create free assets, free videos, the, the book that we're writing, the workbook, it has to be from the ground up. It has to be an investment for each of us. We each have to decide what am I going to do to make the world a better place? We each have to decide what can I do to, to hear something, to decide that I am going to be a part of the change, that I, I'm going to decide that there's a problem, because that's really the first thing, acknowledging that a problem exists and then deciding, what am I going to do about it? Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to listen to people differently? Am, am I going to open up a space for caring, for hearing, for sharing? We have a full initiative around this Bigger Than Me success series. I didn't share it as well. I'm a consultant. I'm also a change agent, um, definitely working with individual leaders as a as an equity and inclusion coach as well, um, but I can come into your team, your, your department. It's like about everyone thinking and hearing. There's so many different voices for you to hear to, to help you, if it's not your experience, understand that it is a real experience. So I'm gonna circle back around to Miss uh, Miss Pamela. So Pam, the question I wanna ask you is, you know, you mentioned the the reality check specifically related to the psychological impact. We know there's physical impact as well. You could talk about the number of you know, any metrics that you want to share around the physiological or the psychological impact. And, and the fact that even <laughs> during our conversation, you said, Tracy, you know, this isn't just a conversation for people that don't look like us. We also have to talk to people who look like us about the experience, because I think each of you share that when you experience trauma, Sometimes it's just your lived, your, this is what you expect to have, right? It's not even about elevating and, and deciding, uh, Johnny, you said it's important that we don't settle for two black people in leadership. That's not enough. So we have to decide a new, we have to desire to, to move toward a new outcome. So Pam, my question to you is not just for people who don't look like us, but people who do look like us, right? For anyone who isn't proactively on a mission to 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 drive change to think about this as a true tr drama you call it a health academic it's a leadership academic it's 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 a humanity it's an issue of humanity at this point so what would you say to human beings listening to this call black white and otherwise uh specifically your people uh who may or may not be and why is it so important that we talk to ourselves as well as uh, about the trauma that we've experienced right because sometimes you experience it and you don't expect any better and then you also have people who are potentially causing harm and don't realize that these three terms of unconscious bias, unequal performance standards, similarity bias, those things cause physical and mental harm. So the struggle is real. Whether you want to believe it or not, the struggle is real. And if, it, if you feel that it doesn't affect you now, it will. And it, it is affecting you 
subconsciously. So when you sit in the room, and as a, an African-American administrator, I, I work for the state of Washington. I've worked for the state of Washington, I think, the last 25 years. Uh, prior to that, I was working in, um, at the health department in public health. So as a, uh, an African-American administrator that sits in the room, oftentimes being the only Black person in the room, or if, I, if there are more Black people in the room, there's maybe another one or two of them. And for those people that deny that the struggle exists, who look like me, but may not think like me, understand that it, it is affecting you psychologically. Because when you go along with this, the, the, the mistreatment of other people that look like you, it, it, it affects you subconsciously. I, I think about, um, was it W.E.B. Du Bois that talked about the state of double consciousness? When you are one way at work or at school or whatever, and then another way at home with your family, that takes a toll on you. Um, it also takes a toll on you for, for the people like me, and I, I talked to Tracy about this, for the people like me who felt the need to uh, always speak up for other people. That was me, always speaking up for other people. When they were treated unjustly, I would speak up for them. But what I, I came to the conclusion that we ought to train people or empower people to speak up for themselves. Because when we talk about trauma, being in the room and um, the other guest, I, I, I can't run, was it Johnny? Johnny? Johnny talked about, I think she talked about group thinking. I, I mentioned this to you yesterday, Tracy. I, am, I, I don't subscribe in group think. Because I'm in a room with you and you feel one way as a group doesn't mean that I'm going to go along with you. Because I have to speak my truth. If I don't speak my truth, I'm damaged. I'm already, and, and, and as an African-American woman who sits in a room uh, with mainly white people, uh, and now I, you know, it was always males, but now you see an abundance of white females that are becoming managers. Um, when you sit in the room with these people as an African-American woman, it traumatizes you alone, okay? because you're treated differently. Um, I likened it to uh, a cult-like environment for me. Uh, I felt that for, for many years, and, it, and it, it's, it's a struggle for me not to join that cult. It's so much easier to just go with the flow, okay? It really is. And I think that's why a lot of our, some of our people who are in the workplace kind of go along with things because they don't want to make waves. But I don't care about the waves. What I care about is that we're all treated fairly. What I care about is that when you look at how many black people or uh, Latino people are being hired and you're counting those, but you're not counting the amount of uh, white people that are being hired, I care about that. I care that and I worked in juvenile. I worked in uh, juvenile justice. I managed the behavioral health programs for the state. What I care about is the programming that we do for our children, the programming that must be culturally culturally competent for our youth. What I care about is the people that are providing the services for our youth, that they're culturally competent, and 
and, and as I, as I said to you yesterday, Tracy, it's time out for continually continuously attempting to train some white people on how to be humans to black people, how to treat us like we're humans, okay? Because we don't have to train black people how to treat other people nice, okay? Well, I think I think you and I disagree with that because I think we both we both actually said that there's people of all color, right? That actually, you know, are part of the problem. Like, so I think oh, system, definitely. But I'm thinking so system one thing. Okay, I was gonna say system, yeah. systems are designed to maintain the status quo. Okay. I had a black I had a black leader on who was from. Um, Trader Joe's, and he was talking about being in a, in a room as a leader and basically feeling like he was being carried away like a wave. This culture, by definition, when you're in a corporation, yes. in a business, right, the culture just sweeps you away. It doesn't matter what color yes. you are, you just get swept, swept away. And I think that's kind of the conversation we want to have with people to, to basically clarify whoever you are, whatever color you are, it, it's really more about acknowledging that there is something happening that we don't acknowledge. There, there is, there, there is a, 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 a a epidemic right that occurs that has physiological and psychological traumatic impact every academic but Tracy, we also have about to, this yeah yes. but we also have to realize that there are people out there that don't care about that and that when i'm true. saying you can't train everybody i meant you can't train everybody some people are just evil let's be real that, let's well, be you, real you know what it doesn't have nothing to do with black or white yeah, so I, the thing I love about this conversation is we don't all come with the same general <laughs> mindset, right? Because I, I, I have to believe, like, I was in a space where I was literally being traumatized on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I had to believe that these are good people. It was nothing in my heart or in my mind. I, I, like, I had to, like, in, in my, no, no matter what was, I, I, like, these are good people. I, I believe wholeheartedly. Right. And I'm choosing to be what what um, what's her name? Dr. Um, Dr. Joy Hardiman said, Tracy, <laughs> she said, <laughs> there is some naivete in what you say. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, you are you're one of the most naive people I know. And I love it. We need your positive energy. We need for you to stay focused. We on need it. We, we, like we need it. And, and so I, I'm going to say I'm going to be that one. Who I am absolutely going to accept the fact there may be some naivete in what I say. But I actually believe I, I actually believe that we're all. In inherently good. I actually, I have to believe that. Like in order for me to maintain, I started a ministry when I left Microsoft, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, I spent two years on my personal journey <laughs> investing in, oh, did I mention I have a book launching on December 11th called Ignite Inner Spirit? <laughs> so, so when I say I invested in my inner spirit, I invested in all things good. It was, it was a requirement for me in order to do this work Really, remember I mentioned to each of you, this work is built around four principles, positive psychology, which is obviously tons of research around, you know, the idea of, you, you know, believing positive things and positive things will come your way. Adaptive leadership, tons of research around that space. And I've, I've done five or six different executive level programs around this idea of adaptive leadership. That means we're creating a safe space for everyone to learn and grow and everyone's opinion matters. The third element is this idea of self-directed learning, which means that everybody has to want to move forward. Wherever you are in the journey, if this is all new to you, it's okay. It doesn't matter where you are. We're all going to move progressively forward on the journey together. And then the third thing is this idea of growth mindset, but not just growth mindset. It has to be growth mindset and action. So I kind of take what Microsoft talks about a lot is this idea of growth mindset, but you can talk about a thing, but if you're not doing anything differently, 
then then there's no value. So it has to be growth mindset in action, which means you're moving toward a desired goal and willing to do things differently. But so been that, there, done that, the Tracy. Been so, there, done that. But but my question was, let me hold on. Yes, let me let me yes. let me ask you, mm-hmm. what do you do? Because there are people out there that don't want to do differently. So I think yes. that's a conversation that additionally needs 100% to happen. Again. You know, it's funny. There's going to be an interview that I'm going to share in our, our next monthly session is on December 12th. So 12, Saturday, 12, 12 from 10 a.m. to noon. And I, I, I did an interview with, um, so as president of the National Black NBA Association Seattle chapter, there's 40 chapters around the nation. The person who was president of the national organization, interim president, Bruce Thompson, I actually did an interview with him because he's been the kind of the godfather of this movement. Because I said, if, if we're going to do this, it's going to take this national initiative. It's going to take this conversation. And I asked him the same thing. I said, what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? He said, Tracy, with your personality, with your ability to bring people together the way you do, you need to focus on the people who want to drive change. You can't help people who don't want to be helped. That can't exactly. be your focus. So we're, we're, we're saying the same thing. I'm not saying they're inherently evil, but what I'm saying is, you know, smart people manage your energy. So mm-hmm. if my energy level gets <laughs> depleted, what I think about those people. So I basically a little bit, you know, there's some naivete in what I say, right? <laughs> I'm okay with that. There's a positivity. Yes. <laughs> it's my focus. So I got to actually think about you. We, we're going to focus on giving out enough free information to mm-hmm. anyone who wants to hear it however you want to hear it. that's why i'm doing all these videos we're creating a documentary we're actually going to be asking for funding it's all bigger than me.com um, <laughs> basically we need for people to like lean in because we actually want to we're creating videos that'll be all over social media right we're creating books and workbooks and training like it can't be just the companies who can afford uh consultants get this information no 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 no. i'm making sure it's available to everyone so that if you want the information if you really want to change we're going to make sure it's available to you we're going to allow you to lean in contribute sponsor us share your voice join the conversation even if you don't feel like you're ready join the conversation anyway so that you can help others who look like you, other allies to move forward. So it really is, your point is well taken. I'm just letting you know, I'm taking a different approach. I'm loving everybody up. I'm bringing in, I'm scooping, I'm doing a huge, huge, you know, virtual hug, bringing in anyone and everyone who wants to hear our voices. And I can't be concerned about those who don't, right? That's the energy that I choose not to expend. Not saying it doesn't exist, Exactly. But I choose to bring in and to love up those who want it, give it to those who wanted it. And I think we gotta, we'll have our hands full with that. Would you agree with that, right? We got I hands full to be taken. There I you go. That's, that, that, that's what we're going to do. I love but it. You got to move so, those people out the way that's going to create an obstacle. Well, I, this, this is what he said. I, I actually, <laughs> I, 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 this is what he said. He said, Tracy, by default, what you're doing creates a space where mm-hmm. if you're working with companies, by definition, who get that this is a health crisis. And that's really the thing I'm trying to get to people's head. I created mm-hmm. this term called corporate chokeholds, right? Yeah. Trademark the term and everything. It's like this idea of saying, you can't just talk about unconscious bias, similarity, similarity bias and, and those things, unequal performance standards, which is what all the research says are the barriers for black people. That's why I keep repeating them. So <laughs> I call them corporate chokeholds, right? It's a corporate chokehold. It's like you're choking people out. You, mm-hmm. you, you're impacting lives in a very different way. And what he said is just by focusing on the success strategies, focusing on the individuals and the organizations that are doing well, by definition, if you're not part of the conversation, then you're one of those organizations who you, you self-select out. 
So we don't have to do any extra work. We don't have to put any energy around those organizations. Because trust me, I got some energy that could be put in places that I choose not to. I choose to focus on positive people doing great things. And that's really what the Bigger Than Me success series is about, right? So so I hear you, but they're gonna self, this is self-select out. Like we, we do what we do. Some people are gonna love mm -hmm. it and wanna be a part of it. And that's actually how we're gonna drive change. Yes. Are you liking it? I got, I got heads nodding, like I love it. Miss Patricia. One of the things you said you wanted to share today was um, uh, kind of a bit of a wake-up call for people. We don't talk politics on this show either. There's no red, there's no blue. We're the party of purple. So we get it all. It's all love. <laughs> so we don't talk politics, but I know each of you have shared some things with me about this idea of um, you know having differences. For people who may or may not even recognize, we have 15 minutes left for this show, and then we're going to continue the conversation with another some additional people joining us. Um, so, Patricia, I know one of the things you wanted to share, and I'm going to have each of you answer this question. But what what is that um, that that loving message that you would share with someone who maybe they're not even aware of the impact that their behavior might have on someone like you? I know you mentioned. Um, some experiences that you had at work or something with someone touching your hair, like, yeah. and saying, I don't consider you black. <laughs> You're one of the good ones. <laughs> tell us about that. I, I will definitely tell you that story, but let me just address Miss um, Pam. Is I work in up in Jefferson County, it's 95% white, you know, 3% indigenous, 1% uh, uh, Hispanic and black. And I work with the county and they are forcing everyone to take some diversity, equity yes. and inclusion training. Mm -hmm. And I know half of those people are, are like, they don't wanna do it. They don't think right. it's important. Black lives do not matter to them. Right. But it's part of what they have to do. It's a mandatory and when I first brought it up, because it, after George Floyd was was murdered, they um, they wrote a proclamation that was very brave. You know, they talked about the racism in their county, and and they talked about George Floyd's murder. And so I had to go talk to one of the groups, and I I referenced their proclamation, and half of the people were like, "Yes, that's right, we need to do something." The other half were basically like, we are not racist. We are not, you know, we treat everybody equally. And so I said, you might treat everybody equally, but you don't treat everybody equitably. And yeah. then so I've been working on trying to explain what that means. Well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's too that's too juicy and delicious for us not to uh, park on a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. So I can't let you go past that one. Hey, Dr. Tart, how are you? <laughs> I'm going to have you angle your camera down a little bit to give us a little less room above your head. Uh, Perfect. Uh, so uh, I'm going to have each of you circle back around and, and, and talk a little bit about what she just said. So when people say I'm not a racist and no one wants to ex no one wants to accept that label. Right. And people say um, I treat everybody the same. And wait, you didn't even answer the part where you said I don't you're not black. I don't treat you. What did you say the lady said to you? Oh, so this is my friend. I was talking to her yesterday and we've known each other for 30 years. She's white and she voted for Obama. I'm not going to go political on you, I promise. But then she voted for Trump. And I thought, okay, um, you know, we had a couple conversations and then we decided that we can't have a conversation with each other about politics. So we talk around it all the time. But after this, smart. yeah, yes. which is smart. But she just asked me to pick her up from the airport on Christmas. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go ahead and ask her this question. 
how she felt about how the election went. But she has drunk the Kool-Aid. And she basically said, you know, the election was stolen. And it made me step back and think about, it's like I'm supposed to be one of your best friends. But the more I thought about it, how often she microaggressed me. Mm-hmm. You know, she constantly reaches out and touches my hair, pats me on the head like I'm a puppy. Um, she says things like, well, you're not black, or I don't see you as black. And it's like, well, then how do you see me? But I, I've i been sort of rethinking our friendship. It's like, okay, you want my friendship when I can do something for you, but you don't really care about... She's never asked me about how I felt about George Floyd, or she's never talked about that with me at all. She's never been able to go deep with me. And it's it's caused me to sort of rethink my friendship. It's like, I she's not my friend. You know, she's she's a person I know. And so I have to be okay with letting go of some of those relationships that I thought were, you know, friendly relationships, but they're not. Well, it's, it's, and, it's interesting. Sorry. Did you go ahead. To, I was going to say, what's interesting about that is, so one of the things you said is for people who don't think they're racist, who, who don't believe they are, and again, not about politically, but just in general, right? Because I don't use that term at all. I intentionally do not use that term racism. I say, well, let's focus on achieving racial equity and inclusion. There's some positive psychology. There's some lean in that comes with that. Who doesn't want to achieve equity and inclusion? Sometimes, you know, right? Who doesn't want that? No one wants to think they're racist. So I, I don't even use the term, right? That, that's not for me to decide or for me to describe or for me to proscribe, right? That, that's for someone else to decide. But but my, my question to each of you is, what do you, what do you say or do, or what do you think about what Patricia just said as far as um, actions um, specific related to, I'm going to ask you, Dr. Tart, since we only have 10 minutes left in the show, I'm going to ask you to uh, say who you are real quick and then tell us what are your thoughts about this idea of racial equity and inclusion and uh, what would you say as a psychotherapist uh, to someone who isn't even aware that there's a problem and don't see themselves as part of the problem? What could you say to help activate a, a, a change, that change muscle? Well, I want to first say hi, everybody. I was really trying to make certain that I was ready for the six o'clock show. You know, six o'clock my time, three o'clock you got. But at any rate, uh, <laughs> as it relates to what it is you just asked, uh, Tracy, I think that we have to recognize that each person does come from his or her own frame of reference. And that frame of reference may very well be that their uh, conditioning, however it is that they've been taught, whatever it is that they've seen, and um, the, 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 even the definition of friendship, what does that mean? That we get along with each other. Or, or if I have someone to, someone to agree with me, then he or she is my friend. But as it relates to uh, not being able to be seen as you are, I think that it is imperative for each of us, regardless of our ethnicity, gender, or whatever, that we want to understand what the other person sees. How do they identify us? Point well taken when... Uh, the young lady said that I, I wanted to ask her, well, then how do you see me? Because sometimes it's it's not uncommon that we see God that way. We have to put him in a box in order for us to relate. So people put us in boxes in order for them to relate to us. And what that does is that it takes away our narrative. It doesn't give... Um, it doesn't it doesn't give us an opportunity to be our true selves or whatever it is that they're looking at doesn't necessarily mean that that's who we are who we are 
Um, so I think that it's, you say, how, how important is that? I think it's critical to our existence to understand that we are clear about who we are and they are clear about who they are and each of us is clear about who the other is, you know, how they see, how, how they see themselves and how they see us. So moving forward in terms of, uh, if, which brings us to the point of how then do we define friendship? I want to go back to that part too. Or in terms of the inclusiveness, how do you see me in being included uh, in, in terms of being important or significant? Um, am I significant enough to share an honest conversation? Am I significant enough to uh, be treated with respect and sensitivity and inclusion and inclusiveness? Am I am, am I significant enough? And if not, then what am I to you? You know, or what are we to each other? I hope that answered. That, that, that was good. It's so funny. What I love about this show is, first of all, I love that it's live. I love that we just talk it out. I've had individual conversations with, conversations with each of you. So when I start stitching things together, it just gets me excited because it's always like two plus two equals 22. There's always some new synergy, <laughs> some new place that we go. And I love it. I always, I, I love that so much. Show me everybody real quick, if you don't mind. So what I wanted to do is I want to ask the same question. We have literally, uh, six minutes left in this particular hour. We're going to continue the conversation to the next hour and we're going to build on the, 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 the idea of um, uh, we're going to continue the conversation, but let's end this, this, this hour with each of you, both Johnny and Pam adding a little uh, your comments on Patricia's topic regarding, um, you know, self-identification. We'll talk a little bit more in the next session around relationships and, and friendships and, and how we, and, and really having true courageous conversations with people that we work with. But what do you guys think about what Patricia said about people not feeling racist and how do you, what would you say to individuals who, again, we don't use the word racism, racist, because again, we don't want to get people boxed up, feeling some kind of way. <laughs> As we say in the South, you know, once people feel in some kind of way, we like to have loving, easy, courageous conversations. We go, you know, we can't, we can't tell someone what they are either, right? That, that, that's the because I think it's really about someone's heart and mind. I assume the best of everyone. So my question to you, I'm going to start with Johnny, then I'm going to come to you, um, Pam, to end, if you don't mind. Johnny, real quick, I'm going to have you share with us your idea, your thoughts about, because I know, Pam, you're going to have some other <laughs> health elements to say. So, Johnny, real quick, if you could just share your thoughts about this idea of, uh, just share your thoughts in general. <laughs> um, well, I, I love, I, I think it's Dr. Tart. Yeah, where, you know, we have to put God in a box in order for us to be able to kind of comprehend and have that relationship. And I love that analogy of how, um, you know, individuals might do that for us, but how we might do that for them as well. And I think it's this, this whole idea of reciprocity in this uncomfortableness for us to be vulnerable with one another, but for us to be able to also I just had a message today from my pastor when I was listening that we have to be open to hear what we don't want to hear. And that can be very uncomfortable for us. So when we're talking about defining somebody's um, discrimination versus racism, it becomes very personal and they get very defensive. And, and then the other side will also get defensive depending on who's you know um, engaging the conversation first. And then we get nowhere. And so I just think um, it's this space where we really have to be vulnerable and we have to be exposed to our own pain so that we can share that lived experience and then, you know, meet that humanity in the middle, so to speak. Mm, I love it. I love it. We're definitely coming back to that. All right, Miss Pam, 
What would you like? Okay. What would you like to share lovingly? You can't. You can't strike a match. Uh, too too hot. Because no, you, you should get say, say whatever you I'm like. A to very say. A no, no. What I mean person. is, we're about to transition. So whatever you're gonna say, I know you are. I, oh, I, I fell in love with you, Pam. I, I I fell in love with you during our last conversation because we're so connected, and we need everything you have to say to be heard. We have three minutes left in this show, and then we're gonna go okay. take a three minute break and then go into the next show. So what would you like to say? Strike a match, baby, and send us over okay. to the next hour. So I just want to say about being colorblind, okay? Yeah. There's, there's this phenomenon about people wanting to be colorblind in the business world. You know, I don't see what color you are. I work with you. I treat you like everybody else. What you're saying to me is, I don't see you, okay? So what you're doing is you're offending me because, first of all, the first thing you see is my blackness, whether you agree or not, that's the first thing you see. So therefore you're lying when you say that you don't see, see me as being black. That's a lie, straight out the pit of hell, as my sister would say. <laughs> um, and about being uncomfortable. It, it is important for us to have these conversations, crucial conversations, I will say, that will take us to where we need to go. And it is being uncomfortable. And that's okay because you grow from being uncomfortable. Those are teachable moments. And so um, the last uh, person said, uh, you have to have an ear to hear. The Bible says, let he who will have an ear to hear, let him hear. They must have an ear to hear, okay? They may listen, but are, are they hearing you really? Mm -hmm. But we have to talk to people about colorblindness, when someone says to you, "You," I have had people tell me they don't, I don't act black or whatever, or I'm different from most black people, and I have to say that offends me, because I love my blackness. No, Doesn't no. make me not like your whiteness. I do like your whiteness, but I love my blackness, and so therefore you have to respect this blackness, like I have to respect the whiteness in you. We all have to respect each other. No matter what race, that. because race is just a construct. Okay. I love that. So, so what I what I love most about this is, and we're going to continue this conversation right into the next hour. So, give us three minutes to I don't know, two minutes station break or whatever it's going to be. Um, I'm going to ask each of you to give us two words, two seconds, um, as we go around real quick. What is the one thing you want people to remember from this moment? Like, what what, what would you like to say to someone who is watching the show? I'm going to say, be open, and we are here on this journey together. Dr. Tart. Be respectful and sensitive. Uh, Miss Patricia. Mm, be open to hearing. I love it. Uh, Pamela. We are all God's children, and now is the time to understand that. Mm, beautiful. And Miss Johnny. Um, be vulnerable to our common and equal humanity. Oh my goodness. I so love this. Whew. So stay with us, guys. We are coming back. This is Tracy Harrell. It's bigger than me. We'll be right back with more on this topic around achieving racial equity and inclusion. We got this. Mm -hmm. 